ACAST. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Your host, Earl Breon here. Look, I'm very excited to uh, be speaking with today's guest, Dr. Franklin Annis. Uh, the way Dr. Franklin and I met up was a little bit different than most of the guests on here. Um, turns out that there's actually a video game titled The Burden of Command, and some folks started cross-posting my posts, uh, thinking the two were linked. And uh, had some discussion with the Burden of Command folks over there, and... Uh, you know, it, it worked out fairly well, and Dr. Annis has actually worked with them as a history uh, as a history major uh, to help them with some of their uh, some of their historical context in the game. And so, as Franklin and I were talking, we realized we were both fans of Stoic philosophy, and decided to have him on the show because he's way more in uh, in depth into Stoicism than I am. Uh, but I think you're going to enjoy this discussion. Dr. Annis brings a lot of history to the table and a lot of insight based off of his personal experiences uh, as an educator himself. So with that, uh, enjoy the show and enjoy learning a little bit more about Stoicism with Dr. Franklin Annis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Franklin Annis, a military philosopher and researcher in the field of military education theory. He has been closely studying and advancing improved theories of military leader development over the last decade. He holds a doctorate of education from North Central University. Dr. Annis is a veteran of the Iraq War. He is a field grade officer with 14 years of service in the Army National Guard and his commentary here expresses his own personal beliefs and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or any of its components. He is also the author of The Evolving Warfighter, Building a Better Warfighter. Dr. Annis, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Well, uh, and I, I want to, real quick, before we get into this, I want to emphasize that last part because I know being uh, in the position that you're in, uh, you you have to be careful to make this uh, very, very clear. So for the listeners, Dr. Annis is joining us today as a civilian, essentially. His comments, whatever they may be, are his and his alone. They do not represent the DOD or any of its entities. So I want to just reinforce that right out of the gate. That being said, when you hear the phrase burden of command, what does it mean to you? Well, it, I think it goes back to the what's the purpose of war. So war occurs when nations or states or peoples can't use their better reason or better judgment to find solutions to the problem they face. Um, and while we can say the warrior class has always been a, a type of people that have been well-disciplined and trained to protect and defend um, and be guardians of their societies or their nations, War itself is fundamentally evil. Now, we can pretend um, 
to a large degree, and we make up theories and laws to say when we're justified in taking war. And we have ethical bounds in terms of how we act inside war. But fundamentally, people get destroyed in war. Property gets destroyed. Suffering comes out of war. Um, there is nothing good uh, when it comes to war. So while we may have um, a group of dedicated professionals um, intended to win wars as fast as possible, what they have to do uh, is fundamentally um, damaging to the human psyche. And the burden of command is commanders have to be able to go into a situation where they don't have the full picture. Um, they don't have full situational awareness, nor will they ever expect to be. Um, but they have to make decisions, and those decisions will drastically impact the individuals that have followed them to war, their soldiers. Um, so the burden of command is realizing after the war has ended all the wrong choices that the the commanders have made and seeing uh, the hardships that not only fell on your own soldiers and their families, whether it's loss of life, destruction, um, just, yeah, just the carnage that can happen to your own soldiers, but what you have done to other people in the attempt to find peace. And uh, while commanders may be um, very good at getting to a state of peace and returning back to the point where there is no conflict, there will always be that memory and that burden of the the true horror that had to be unleashed to get there. Yeah, no, that that um, I mean that's that's a great way to to define it. You know, as as a Marine Corps veteran myself, you know, even serving in peacetime, uh, but still have a lot of friends who have been sent overseas. Uh, some who even served in the first Gulf War. Uh, I think the way you put that is is very brilliant and very eloquent. And you know, the thing is, is uh, being veterans, we're we're going to talk about a lot of this stuff from the the military perspective. But if you are a corporate CEO listening to this podcast, don't turn it off. Uh, a lot of these same things apply to you, just in a completely different manner. You know, it, it may not be as as uh, Dr. Annis put it, the the carnage and destruction in terms of buildings and bodies, but uh, you know, bottom lines and lives, uh, destroyed bottom lines still ruin lives. And, and that burden that the doctor is talking about here, you know, it, it can and really does extend to you in kind of a nebulous way, not a, a direct way. But but you have a lot of those same burdens that Dr. Annis was just talking about. W would you agree with that? Yes. Yes, I would. Yeah. So one of the reasons uh, that we connected, it was kind of a happy... Uh, a happy accident, if you will. Um, the, apparently, there's a, a video game out there, and I've not had a chance to play it, titled The Burden of Command. And uh, you've, you've worked with those folks a little bit on some of the military history aspect, right? Uh, well, yes. I've, I've interviewed them in terms of looking at how they're trying to design that game to be, um, I guess you could say, emotionally realistic in terms of how they're portraying the leadership aspects of warfare and then yes just being uh kind of constantly engaged in their twitter feed you know every once in a while they have questions about symbols or history and i'll, I'll chime in and throw in my two cents about kind of how i how i would personally like to see games designed right no and it was through one of those uh types of twitters uh somebody saw this podcast and saw hey the burden of command podcast the burden of command video game obviously they're connected well we're we're not 
But you and I engaged in a little bit of a discussion and found out that, uh, you know, we, we both uh, are kind of fans of the Stoic philosophy. And, and you've really been studying the influence of Stoic philosophy on army education theories, right? Yes. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, go, go ahead. So it's been a recent project. And it was something that I really stumbled on by a whole bunch of series of accidents. Um, so one of the reasons why I started my own kind of YouTube channel is I realized that the Army doesn't cover a lot of subjects very well. Um, and I wanted to help. Um, whether it's writing articles or producing videos, kind of fill on the blank of, I would, I would like to say the rougher areas of professional military education. And I even kind of invented the term black market um, professional military education to deal with the topics that, you know, they're, they're so contra, they're so, I don't say controversial, they're so impactful that they're very difficult to discuss well. So you almost have to have the conversation outside the organization you know, come to some type of conclusion point, allow people to really storm their ideas and really argue. And then when it gets kind of shaped up or better defined, squared away, then that can be carried back into kind of the official um, official institution. So it was kind of the rougher areas of, of Army education. One of those that I've always thought that the Army didn't really prepare us well for was philosophy. So I've done a series of art, or interviews with various different philosophers um, or students of philosophy um, to try to find philosophies that could help soldiers. And uh, one of those was an interview with uh, Donald Robinson. I don't know if you've uh, read any of his work. Uh, his book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Uh, if, I could, if I could buy one book to give every soldier in the military, that would be, that would be the book to hand them. Because it's, it's an outstanding book that describes kind of the the military history and life story of Marcus Aurelius, and then how the Stoic philosophy actually helped him as a Roman emperor and a general in war. And uh, I believe it's probably the best introduction to Stoicism, if no one's been introduced to it before. And it's definitely one of the better books to pick up in terms of the military aspect, because it, it provides the really cool uh, military history uh, that most soldiers would enjoy reading about as well. So, I had done that interview that was kind of fresh in my mind. And then um, from my own personal uh, studies in military education philosophy, uh, I ran across a very ancient, a very old uh, educational theorist called Captain Alden Partridge. And uh, he was an officer that, um, that lived just kind of turn of the 19th century, so early 1800s. And he probably would be remembered as the most famous American educational theorist of all time um, if he hadn't found a way to justify that the West Point Military Academy shouldn't really exist. <laughs> a lot, yeah. Uh, his, it's unfortunate that he really developed a way, American way of education that was far better than anything that existed before. Unfortunately, it, it conflicted with kind of the existence of what West Point was. And uh, a lot of us may know the ROTC or the Reserve Officer Training Corps it produces most of the officers, at least for the Army. Right. Um, that program is taken from a small chunk of his theories. Uh, but he was 
uh, the first educational theorist in America to say, hey, you know, physical fitness is important. You, you know, a generation ahead of his time. Uh, he was kind of dabbling in what we would think of as adult education theory, like a hundred years before we actually had a, a true formatted, full-fledged theory of it. Um, he, there's even evidence that he was one of the first scholars to engage in uh, special education. Um, he was one of the first people to ever recommend that women go to college. So he extended college courses to women in 1829. Mm. And it wasn't just any college courses. This would have been like STEM courses. So just a revolutionary scholar. But unfortunately, because he kind of had this um, row proving that, you know, there was a better way of providing officers for the militia and you didn't need a standing army through West Point and the standing officer corps. Kind of early historians didn't record him very well. Um, and they were pretty hostile. So I kind of really fell in love with his educational theories when I ran across them uh, about 10 years ago. And I've always thought to myself, like, I need to go back and see how many of these theories I could bring forward. Because I truly think they could, they could, they could revolutionize American colleges today. They're so far in advance. And a lot of his theories have never been fully tested, which would be quite amazing if you actually had a chance to. Um, so I had this great kind of backpack full of knowledge of this historical figure that was amazingly influential. Oh, I guess the other thing I didn't say about Captain Partridge was he was a famous walker uh, and hiker. And he would climb mountains. Uh, he was an engineer by trade, so he would measure the elevations of mountains. And uh, when, you know, our country is new, he would, would climb various mountains to, to take the first measurements of the heights of these various mountains. But he would do insane walking, and I've been trying to copy his practices, but the, the guy could just march for miles. Like, there's records of him marching like 64 miles in a day. There's, there's records of him marching like hundreds of miles in a week. Um, I even think I found a reference that he said, said walked 77 miles in a day. Wow. Um, I'm trying to confirm that, but just insane amount of marching that this guy could do. Um, and he inspired the creation of what was known as the Long Trail in Vermont. And then that led to the creation of the Appalachian Trail. So here's this character that anyone that understands education theory understands Horace Mann, kind of the beginning of American public school. Well, Horace Mann was influenced by Partridge. And here we have this guy who created the trail system, inspired a trail system across America, but somehow we don't we don't know him just because somehow his reputation got damaged along the way. Well, and that's a sad piece there, right? I think it was, um, uh, it's been attributed to a few different people in a few different ways, but I, I believe it was uh, Napoleon that said history is nothing more than a collection of lies agreed upon by the winners. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> and, and and so, yeah, I mean, it's sad. Like, like you're talking about the Appalachian Trail. So I grew up in northeast Tennessee, a little town uh, called Irwin, Tennessee. And the, the Appalachian Trail literally ran through my hometown. So, you know, I've walked that section in in, uh, in northeast Tennessee into North Carolina and, uh, multiple, multiple times, and, but have never heard any mention to the origins of, of, uh, Captain Partridge here. So, uh, yeah, it, it sounds like he's a, he's a figure that, that America in general and, and history needs to remember a little bit more fondly from what you're telling us here. Yes, most, most definitely. Yeah. So I had this background, so kind of knowledge of 
stoicism, had this whole bunch of knowledge of educational theory. And then I, I actually had a chance to sit down and do an interview with uh, Dr. Bruce Goodmanson, a historian that works for the Marine Corps. And in that conversation, he talked several times about a, a Greek general named Xenophon. And he was talking about him in terms of uh, referencing uh, the apology of uh, Socrates. So he wrote an account of kind of the trial and death of Socrates, which most of us, when we know the apology of Socrates, we're thinking of Plato. Uh, but there's this incredibly f amazing uh, Greek general Xenophon uh, that had his own kind of series of great and adventures. Um, in fact, he, he wrote a book called The Anabasis. So he was part of a mercenary army that attacked Syria and the army essentially lost, um, lost the battle. Um, the, the person that was trying to replace uh, the emperor got killed and all of a sudden there an army of 40,000 troops stuck in the middle, middle of enemy territory and they got hundreds of miles to get out of enemy territory. And there's a great book called The Anabasis, which I wish that we still read in uh, military curriculum. But it's the story of how um, that Greek army with no cavalry attempts to get out of hostile territory. And there's just some awe-inspiring um, stories that occur in there. And in that, that, that historical event, Xenophon becomes a, a general of the army at something like 30 years of age. After he makes it back to Greece, he gets exiled from Athens, and then he becomes a, a general of Sparta. Um, and the Spartans themselves, the great warriors that we know, uh, most people know from the movie 300 and kind of pop culture, um, the Spartans themselves never, uh, they don't have any recorded history, so none of it survives. Right. Uh, but Xenophon, um, as a historian, wrote about politics and various things. So he captured a lot of the Spartan traditions and really saved um, kind of the occurrences of Sparta. And uh, in a lot of ways, we can say that um, Xenophon is kind of the proto-Stoic. Uh, so a lot of his passages have what later on develops into full-fledged Stoicism after, um, after the creation of the formal Sto school of Stoicism. Um, but... Xenophon, just bringing up his name um, in that interview with Bruce Goodmanson, made me realize that uh, the Anabasis is inside Captain Partridge's curriculum. So I went back and I looked through, um, uh, it's, a, it's a lecture that Partridge wrote called The Lecture on Education. It was written in 1826, and I started to look for at every book and everything that he was doing and then trying to compare that back the Stoic philosophy, or what's called Neo-Stoic philosophy, which is Stoicism plus Christian theology. And the more I started going through this process, the more I realized pretty much every practice and every book, every source he was using related back to this larger philosophy, a much bigger worldview about how to frame your thoughts and ideas. And, uh, if anyone knows anything about Stoicism, it's an exceptional philosophy in terms of um, just dealing with the hardships of life. And that, that can be as simple as what being a businessman and kind of going through the frustration of trying to get deals and realizing what's inside your control and you can act upon those and what's outside of your controls. You should 
you know, understand that you're going to have emotional responses, but you should be ruled by reason and uh, try to direct your thoughts and actions by reason and not just by emotion. And if you focus on what you can control, you tend to be, um, number one, better able at shaping your environment and changing your situation. Uh, but number two, you can become kind of far more emotionally stable because if you get upset by something you know you can't control, you realize, you know, I can't change this. So, you know, even though I'm upset about it, why am I being upset about something that I can't change? I'll just go focus on being productive and changing things. Right. And uh, the one thing I've realized, at least in my own career, is the Army uh, has been struggling with building a system of resilience. So we have resiliency training, which unfortunately we bought a program designed for uh, preteens. So it's not a full-fledged um, program and it doesn't use the full um, educational terms. So once you learn the Army style of resiliency program, uh, it becomes very difficult for a soldier to go look up more information on the civilian side because the language has been simplified. And I don't think you really need to do that. And stoicism could be used and implanted back into the Army. And it could give us that much larger worldview that we've been missing, how to frame our thoughts and ideas um, and how to be psychologically resilient. But the beautiful thing about Stoicism, and especially Neo-Stoicism, is it's a philosophy that is fully supportive of individual rights. So it's everything that we should be safeguarding in our own constitution. And right now, since the Army has kind of just a list of values, but no philosophical framework to put those values in, those values don't work very effectively, but we can also fall prey, since we're not trained in formal philosophy, to very corrosive and very toxic philosophies that run contradictory to our own constitution, the own, the own, our own history as America. Uh, but we're not realizing it's happening just because our education system hasn't really prepared our soldiers. And, uh, well, it's, it's tragic that it happens, but we default to kind of what pop culture says to try to find an answer for something instead of rationally thinking it through and then comparing it back to how does this relate to my values? How does this relate to virtues? How does this relate um, to my profession? So I think that the army um, could, could greatly benefit by reestablishing a formal philosophy inside the military. And I think that, um, why you can't do that with neo-stoicism because the kind of First Amendment conflicts with the Christian aspects of that philosophy with military service. Um, I think you could use a form of modern stoicism that updates the ancient stoicism with kind of our modern understanding of science. So the Stoics believed back in the day that you could fully control your emotion through thought. And now we recognize that's probably not possible because of, you know, brain chemistry, but we can adapt that to say you can gain control of your emotions or to this degree you can do it. And uh, we could build a very, a very protective philosophy for the military that would really strengthen uh, the, the warrior culture inside our military, but it would, it would actually help us protect against propaganda and all sorts of other things along the way. I really don't know why we're not doing it. Well, you, you, you bring up a really good point there, which it, it kind of saddens me to hear you say that 
uh, we're not doing a better job of it because, uh, you know, I mean, everything Dr. Annis just said is, is correct. And if you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, um, you'll remember one of my first uh, few guests back in season one, uh, late or about this time last year, uh, was a gentleman named uh, Colonel Lee Ellis, uh, who was a POW of the Hanoi Hilton. And those gentlemen, uh, thanks to Admiral James Bond Stockdale and him being a fan of the Stoics, they were able to go through everything they did, and, and they suffered a much, much lower PTSD rate than the general Vietnam uh, veteran population because of the things that Dr. Annis is talking about, the uh, the the resiliency piece of it, the the taking the ownership, and and I know a lot of uh, love listeners heard me. Uh, my favorite uh, Stoic quote is is uh, Epictetus: "Men are disturbed not by things, but the view of which they take of them." And uh, you know, so kind of tying those two things together with with the with the veteran suicide rate we see now, I'm I'm, I'm really saddened to hear that that. With us having a direct modern military correlation setting out there with uh, the the prisoners at the Hanoi Hilton and and how it was able to help them with their uh, mental resilience, mental toughness in a situation like that. Um, Yeah, why? I mean, I know this would just be speculation because you're not sitting in a decision-making position but yeah, what's what's the hang-up? Why is stoicism so difficult to get traction? Well, I, I can guarantee you, and I can pretty much lay it out flat, that the modern academia will not want the return of Stoicism and Neo-Stoicism inside education cycle. And it's just because our, I believe our political base inside our modern academia has shifted so much. Um, and some of that's due to just the change in philosophy. So I... You can't really point to single people in history and say, well, if it's, it's that single person. And if we could just go back in time and kill that one guy, everything would be fine. Right. Um, but there was a German philosopher named Hegel that made a whole bunch of um, kind of errors in philosophy, or at least I would say errors in philosophy that we know now are simply not true. However, we've held or at least certain aspects of uh, academia has held on to those um, beliefs because it provides political power and other types of power. So um, Hegel, unfortunately, when we think of philosophy, I think that most people say, oh, it's kind of old dead people and it's really super complicated and they use these big terms that no one understands. And the one thing that's beautiful about Stoicism is Stoicism said, we don't care about what happens after we die. We really don't care about where stuff comes from. We're just focused on how to live and be good right now. So Stoicism is an absolute practical philosophy that's restricted just to practical philosophy. If you look at like other forms of philosophy, you get into these very complex discussions about where life comes from, what's the meaning of life, et cetera, et cetera. But Hegel in particular was known to make philosophy so complicated that his philosophy um, descri- is described by a lot of philo- as a lot of scholars as impenetrable. So he was one character that made philosophy so complicated that it be- almost became like the emperor's new clothes. So I don't understand what this guy is saying. He keeps going on and on about these complex theories. I'm essentially going to agree with him because it's so complex at this point. I can't follow his thoughts, and I'll look like an idiot if I disagree with him. Gotcha. 
So out of Hegel and some of the false ideas of Hegel, you have a guy named Karl Marx, which everyone knows from communism or should know. Uh, right. Unfortunately, he is the most studied philosopher inside America, believe it or not. And we read his philosophy for a series of various things. He's the most read um, philosopher in terms of his philosophy is not even only read in philosophy. It's read in literature and other classes as well. But Karl Marx uses a lot of the failed assumptions of Hegel in to build his, his philosophy. And unfortunately, even though we have demonstrated time and time again that that philosophy is false, it continues to propagate. So Marx tried to apply, well, what we think of now as Marxism to kind of market forces. And uh, that obviously failed in terms of every attempt. And, uh, you know, he would say that the value of thing is how much time you, you invest in making that, which is not true. Because if I make something that no one wants, it doesn't matter if I spend my whole life making something no one wants. It's fundamentally worthless. Right. Um, but understanding that neo or that Marxism failed, a lot of modern scholars have tried to take the Marxist principles and apply that to culture. And that's what we're seeing now with the various political fallout that's happening exa exactly right now in, uh, in the world. So now it's what, what people would claim to be privileged or, um, you know, social classes or, you know, various other things in society. And no matter how many times we say that, you know, Karl Marx was writing about kind of a British culture that was very classed in America, it does not have a class society and we have, probably more social mobility than anyone else. We still have a whole bunch of people claiming to this, this false philosophies. And uh, unfortunately, the moral aspect of those philosophies defaults to say that the collective is important, but the individual is not. So you can do all sorts of miserable things to individuals, including murder individual citizens without it being considered wrong, uh, provided that the collective benefits. And that's something that you know, at least from the foundational aspects of the Stoic philosophies and the neo-Stoic philosophies at the heart of America or traditional America would say the individual is sovereign and you can never think of just killing John because the rest of society benefits because John is a sovereign citizen and he's got rights. So, um, yeah, I just <laughs> wish we could get back to the point where we could have a practical philosophy, but academia will almost always claim whole claim to these neo-Marxist ideas because they make philosophy so difficult that you need an elite ruling class to tell you what it means. So one of the modern theories that's used um, and you'll hear it a lot is intersectionality. So I'm sure you've heard of it before. Right. So the theory is when I go down to evaluate a person and I take a look at them and say, well, I'm going to take a look at, kind of their, their upbringing, their race, their gender. And then I'm going to figure out kind of the oppression that they've suffered through each one of these kind of lines of their identity. And um, by patching them all together, I'll figure out a way to kind of quantify the oppression in the system. And that, that way I can, um, well, really assign victimhood. So the biggest victims can gain the most power um, inside that, that system. Now, the logical outcome, and anyone that has ever used reason would say the logical outcome of intersectionality is individualism. 
to say, you know, I can't judge a person by hundreds of different types of kind of factors where they might be oppressed. So I'll take everyone as they come. I'll judge them as an individual. I'll judge them by whether or not they act virtuously and I'll judge them by what they're able to achieve and I'll judge them as a person. That would be the logical conclusion is every time you add a line of intersectionality, you move away from collectivism towards individualism. However, intersectionalists can produce whatever type of results they want to see by changing the factors that they evaluate in society. So an intersectionalist philosopher will never follow that process to its logical conclusion because it makes that philosopher worthless to society. But if that philosopher holds on to the power of judging which factors are most important, then we need to pay that person hundreds of thousands of dollars to teach our children and we have to maintain them. Um, and it's, it's kind of tragic that, uh, that those type of philosophies have stuck in our society just because they're a way of gathering power and wealth, but they don't actually add any value to our society. And and just to you know, kind of be clear, what, what you're saying is, uh, it's not that those things don't exist, right? I mean, uh, struggles, uh, you know, poverty, uh, growing up in an inner city, you know, yes, those things exist and have an impact on a person, right? Yes. Yeah. So <clears throat> this is this is a great example of we've. We've disconnected ourselves with our philosophical foundations of our country. Right. So if we look at back in military history, we might say, well, what caused the Civil War? And there's a lot of reasons, but the big reason was slavery, right? The right to earn slaves. And we can look at historical characters like you have the transcendentalist philosophers. So a lot of people know, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, Henry David Thoreau. They're very big abolitionists, but they were absolute individualists. So, you know, you judged an individual by their individual achievements, their actions. It wasn't about the color of their skin. It wasn't about where they came from. It was about what they did that gave them value. Right. And uh, there was a guy named Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, I've, I've heard of. I'm not intimately familiar with uh, the works, but I definitely heard the name. Yes. So he... Um, quite a fascinating character in history. So he was one of six men that funded John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. That was one of the incidents that really started the process of us going into a civil war. And uh, it's really interesting because I need to really look more into the history, but all the other five men either got prosecuted or fled because of their actions, essentially funding a terrorist. Um, but for some reason he wasn't touched and uh he was an active abolitionist. He was a transcendentalist. He was a Unitarian minister. But during the American Civil War, he actually took command of the first black regiment. And uh, he, uh, he wrote a book called An Army Life in a Black Regiment. Amazing book. But he lays out in that book a way of judging soldiers to say, you set a standard for what people should do. And then you judge people about whether or not they can hit that standard. And performance. And it's not about their race. It's not about their color. It's can they do their job? And if we wanted to end depression inside America, if we could only adapt that mindset again, and I, for the life of me, I will spend, you know, hours discussing with people to say, what are the standards? Are we using the correct standards? Are we measuring the standards in the correct way? 
those are all valid arguments to find the best people that want the, those type of jobs that they're going after. It fully supports freedom. And the people that, you know, get those positions or the people that pursue that, they're passionate about whatever job they're, they're getting at. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if they're all purple or all red or, you know, whatever color, gender, whatever. They exercise their own um, individual liberty to pursue what they're, they wanted to do in life. Uh, we would never look at a population and say, oh, there has to be prejudice there because it looks this way or looks that way, features that they can't change. But unfortunately, now we live in a society that's coming down now and saying, hey, we looked at your appearance and we've judged you as biased without kind of going into that larger conversation of saying, well, maybe certain uh Types of people like certain jobs more than other types of jobs. Maybe it's part of their culture. As long as there's not, you know, any type of barrier that would prevent kind of outsiders from entering that career, it's not fundamentally biased to have kind of enclaves. And uh, it's kind of ironic that that kind of the touch touchstone word of today is diversity, right? Everyone mm -hmm. wants diversity. Well, diversity happens when you allow enclaves of people to develop separate cultures. So if we looked across our society and demanded that kind of every station in life be occupied by the exact same ratio of all these different type of diversity markers, we're actually not supporting diversity at all. We're actually destroying diversity at that point because we'll never allow groups of individuals to form their own kind of unique cultures that when they step out of that culture could be kind of uh, radically beneficial to other people. So just kind of an interesting paradox that we're stuck in. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, you know, and, and I just want to, because we're talking about some heady stuff here, and I, I just kind of want to make sure that, that listeners are, are tracking. Uh, because, you know, I agree with you. And, and in my I'm sure if my partner was here, he'd agree too, because we, you know, we do diversity and inclusion training. We say pretty much the same thing. Is, is this, you should, our training is not about uh, picking, for instance, it's not about hiring somebody because they're black. The training is about you should not not hire somebody because they're black. Correct. But we also have uh, th this kind of issue right now that we're dealing with as as a nation where there have been some policies uh, put in place that uh, in our history that have put certain populations behind uh, behind track, so to speak, to be as worthy as others. For instance, um, the GI Bill. You know, one of the reasons uh, the one of the reasons when when people say white privilege, they point to the fifties. You know, the the forties and fifties. With we had this explosion in white growth as far as businesses and uh, education, and that led to NASA and things like that. Whereas black soldiers were denied the use of the GI Bill when they came back. And that created a little bit of an educational gap. So agreeing with you uh, about judging people based on who they are and what they've had, from a, from a philosophical standpoint, how do we close that gap from people who have been actually denied the opportunities to progress versus people who have had more opportunities made available to them? So... I, so this kind of goes back to stoicism in the sense that right. you have to agree that in nature, nothing is equal. 
Mm-hmm. So we'll never, we can never look outside in the nature world, a natural world and say what all foxes are equal to each other. So you're always going to have some type of variant. And that, that variant could be intelligence or speed or size, whatever, health. Um, and that can be radically different even inside um, a traditional family. So if we look at the great quote from, I think it was Thomas Sorwell, he said something like that the, uh, the economic outcomes of siblings in the same family will never be the same. So how could we possibly want to see that across society? And uh, the big thing that I would like to kind of point out is it's how we look at society itself. So I, I'm a really big individualist because like, it, it allows for freedom. And as soon as we start judging people mainly by collectives, and sometimes people are judged by collectives that they don't actually claim to belong to, mm-hmm. you get this problem of um, kind of the median. So you always have a bell curve. So you're going to have people that fall flat on their face and be people that would be highly accept- accept- or exceptional. But if you measure everybody by a bell curve, you get an average score. But the average score itself doesn't tell you if you pick one person at random where they're going to fall. So they might be the dud or they might be the rock star on that, that platform. Um, so we have, really have to go back to the individual in terms of saying, what type of opportunities have you had? What barriers have you faced? What have you overcome? And we'll judge you as an individual. Um, I have a good friend and um, great guy uh, that I've known for a long time, uh, Major Jones. He was a, a African-American. He grew up on the south side of Omaha inside the ghetto, uh, single family or single parent family, multiple kids. You know, everything that would say that, hey, you're headed to failure in life. But he realized young and uh, it was kind of remarkable that he developed a stoic philosophy with no kind of introduction to stoicism to say, Hey, I have chances and choices and my actions uh, in life where I make it is going to be dependent on kind of what I take. So if I take the opportunities I'm given and work hard, I'm going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And for him, it turned out exceptionally well. So here you have a kid that by every means would have, you could have said, Hey, this guy is pretty much destined to be in jail. You know, I think most of his relatives were in jail one time or another, but here he is, field grade officer. So the question is, how did that guy make it? Now, he might be the rock star in the bell curve, but we could help society by sharing his story and getting his example out um, to people that are in his situation uh, so that they can kind of overcome things. Now, we can be kind and compassionate when we're kind of evaluating life and saying, Hey, I'm going to look at you and determine, you know, what you've overcome and in terms of providing you opportunities or picking people for employment. And it's kind of weird with the modern, the modern situation because so at least since I've graduated college in the early two thousands, I can say, I know that there's a, a very big drop in the value of education of college. So we've overinflated college and because of governmental policies making it easier to pay for college, more people have went, which means there's more demand. And then the supply itself, um, because there's far more demand, uh, the quality dropped like a rock. And uh, the purpose of education has been shifting 
for more than 200 years and definitely in the last 20 years to say, well, maybe the kid that walks out of, you know, the Ivy League school isn't the best kid for the job, even though he has the right cultural markers for that, that position. So I think when we look at kind of shaping our society to be more fair and just, it's a matter of taking a look at individuals, what they've achieved, what they've faced, uh, do they have the prerequisites that are needed for that job? And can we make it happen? Or can we offer that opportunity to them? Yeah. There is no way to calculate the amount of, I don't know, that, there's no way to count, calculate the amount of oppression in the past in a way that would be rational, logical, and impactful to our society at the individual level today. Like, what happened to my grandfather hasn't happened to me. Yes, some of the resources that my grandfather had may have impacted my life, but you know, giving me some certain benefit because what happened to my grandfather may or may not make any difference to my life right now. And there's no real way of balancing the scale or even ca- trying to attempt to calculate how to balance that scale at the moment, unless you can think of one. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I actually, I, I like the way you answered that. And, and uh, you know, the story of your friend, the major. Uh, yeah, I mean, that story is a lot like mine. I said I grew up in Northeast Tennessee. Uh, my, my parents split when I was young, when my parents had issues with drugs growing up, uh, had an uncle who was an alcoholic, uh, was raised by my grandparents and, uh, you know, uh, didn't make, they didn't make a lot of money. Uh, you know, Northeast Tennessee education at the time, you know, <laughs> it was a joke for a reason. Um, you know, so yeah, there was a lot of disadvantages, but, you know, I think that's what drew me to stoicism and, and kind of like your, your friend, I didn't know that's what it was at the time, but I remember looking around. I said, I said to myself, I said, look, I see what making these decisions have, uh, have done for these people. If I take it upon myself to make different decisions than what they've made, I'm going to have a different outcome. I didn't know what that was going to be, but I was able to overcome those types of things and, and, uh, and have, you know, a fairly successful life. Um, so I think that's why I like stoicism a lot is is that it gives a lot of it gives a lot of self-control and self-power over your current situation and your future situation, right? Yes, I think the the biggest thing that most people miss that I wish that I could tell everyone to say the difference between kind of stoicism or the variants of stoicism, individualism and what we're facing now, which is largely collectivism, neo-Marxism, uh, progressivism, is that kind of stoicism will focus and orientate an individual to act through virtue. So it doesn't matter what happens everywhere else, to anyone else in society if you're a stoic. The only thing you're really cared about is doing what you can do and acting in accordance to virtue. So doing good in the world, helping your fellow man. Where if we look at the collectivist societies like Marxism, like they frame their world in terms of looking at other people to evaluate whether or not there's more kind of status, wealth, power through other people. So it's a, it frames your whole worldview through vice versus virtue. So the differences between one individual and the other can be radically different to say, especially you know, I used to work with homeless veterans all the time. And for a period of time, I ended up being a homeless veteran. You see kind of, 
you, you can knock down a person until they have absolutely nothing. But the person that says, hey, I'm going to focus on doing good and improving myself. I'm going to work hard every day just to make one thing better. That person will climb out of their disparity and they'll return to normal life. But the person that says, life's unfair, you know, I should be given more money, this shouldn't have happened to me. The person that just focuses on that negative vice never, ever kind of has an incentive to, to act in ways that they become exceptional. Um, and for that reason, they stay always in that poverty, which is unfortunate. Well, right, because the the, the first mindset, that's something that you have control over. That's something that you can do. You can do, you can do something to improve today. Whatever it is, you know, uh, you can do something. If you blaming uh the the other mindset is blaming other people well if somebody would just do something for me to make me better i could be better and and you can't control what other people do for you right yes yeah that's correct i and again so I, i've really enjoyed this conversation so far uh and and uh i think we, you and i have talked a lot about stoicism uh, and you've done a great job of kind of uh, detailing what it is and how it kind of fits into uh, to modern society and, and education and all that. Um, and we've kind of danced around this one a little bit, but just for, for listeners who may not be familiar with what Stoicism or Neo-Stoicism uh, is, and if, if they are that type of leader, uh, what are some attributes of a, of a Stoic or Neo-Stoic leader? So I think we covered... Uh, a lot of them is so Stoics fundamentally are going to be focused and oriented towards virtue. So you should evaluate what you're doing in life. Is it good? Is it just? Is it right? If it's not good, not just, not right, you shouldn't do it. Hands down. You take ultimate responsibility for what you can do. The next thing that you should be doing in life is taking a look at what's within your power and what's not in your power. And if it's not in your power, then you can acknowledge it. And it's something that's going to kind of be a burr under your stand, saddle in some ways, um, but it's going to happen. But you should direct kind of your, your activities and your actions towards the things that are easily uh, in your control so you can work on improving yourself or your community. Um, let me see what other aspects are there in Stoicism. Uh, the one big thing that people misunderstand about so stoicism is stoicism is fundamentally geared to make you a happy person so you can enjoy your the actual positive emotions that you have. Uh, true stoicism will not make you emotionalist. Uh, but what stoicism does is if you find yourself that you're kind of enraged or you're upset, um, you're sad, you're depressed, um, what stoicism will remind you of is those negative emotions happen and uh, it's natural to encounter those. However, what will, will help us solve problems is our use of rational thought. So when we um, encounter those experiences, we need to kind of go back to the question, do I have power to fix this? If we don't have power to fix it, then we acknowledge the fact that we have those emotions, but we can't change it. So at some point we can say, hey, we can let go of those emotions because, you know, feeling sad, Feeling terrified won't change the situation. It's not helpful, so I'm just going to try to relax. If I'm, if I have the power to change the situation, then I'm going to take whatever action I need to to improve my situation, so I don't know that or don't encounter that negative emotion again. And uh, there are a number of 
practices and techniques that the Stoics use. And I just want to say that Stoicism isn't just kind of a collection of practices, but it is a bigger worldview. Um, but one practice that the Stoics use to kind of center yourself or realize where you are in the spectrum is when you're when you find yourself in a very negative um, kind of emotional state is to think to yourself, you know, what's the what's the absolute worst case that can happen to me uh, because of the situation I'm, I'm facing? So you think of the worst nightmare, worst outcome you can have, like, oh, I'll lose my job, I'll die, I'll, I'll lose my family because of, I'm having trouble at work. And then on the other hand, once you've thought about that kind of imaginary monster, you you should take some time and say, what's the what's the most likely thing that will happen? Like, uh, the boss will yell at me. I have to, you know, I have to work late this week to get that thing accomplished. Uh, maybe there's conflicts. Maybe I lose an account, but you know, I can I can work things. I can find another customer. You know, things will work out um, in the long run. And kind of by by going through the practice of saying, this is my emotional state. This is the worst boogeyman that I could imagine here's the most likely thing that will happen is you can essentially rebalance yourself and say, well, maybe I was stressing out too much about this situation or, you know, Hey, maybe this is going to be bad because I'm going to be fired. But, you know, at this point, you know, I just walk in, I get fired and I move on with my life instead of, you know, spending days of my life in pain. No, I, I, I and again, I like that. It, it reminded me, you know, I, uh, have, have you ever seen the movie Inglorious Bastards by Quentin Tarantino? Yes, I have. So there's that scene at the very end when uh, when they carve the swastika in uh, uh, <laughs> yes it, in uh, in Wal- uh, Landa's face right and he's like you you backtracked on your deal they'll they'll kill you for this and Aldo Ray looks at him and says nah they'll just yell at me I've been yelled at before <laughs> I mean I think that that actually kind of does a good job of of summing it up right I mean he he knew what the consequences were going to be. And he was okay with them. Uh, he knew he was yes. going to get yelled at. Uh, well, look, uh, Dr. Annis, we, we have been talking here for, believe it or not, we are sitting around 52 minutes right now. This wow. this is, conversation has really flown by, and, and I've enjoyed every second of it. Um, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to, to touch on and, and how broad this subject is? I'm sure there's a lot that we didn't touch on. But is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you would like to before we wrap up? Yes. So the big thing for the military is we have kind of, I would hate to say them idols, but military idols or heroes out there that for some reason or another, well, I know the reason, that their theories have actually stuck and they work. So Carl um, von Klauswitz, the, the famous dead Prussian, like there's not a military leader alive that, that hasn't referenced him or doesn't know about him. And then the larger concept of mission command. Mm-hmm. Well, both the theories of Clausewitz and mission command require a neo-Stoic worldview to function well. And one of the the huge reasons why we continue to fail um, as a military trying to implement those concepts is we are missing the larger philosophy that the little theories operate in. So unless we find a way to get back to using the larger theory or larger philosophy and actually talking about the larger philosophy, we, we most likely will never get those kind of exceptional battlefield theories and techniques to work for us until we, until we regain that full-fledged philosophy. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I would agree. I don't know, uh, 
I don't know what the hang-up is, but but I think stoicism is definitely uh, something that should be embraced uh, more widespread. And, you know, it, I, the great thing about it is, is it's not a philosophy, in my opinion, it's not a, a philosophy that necessarily precludes other philosophies. Uh, it, in a lot of ways, the way I see it, it it can strengthen other ones. Now, sure, there's some, there's going to be some 180 degree out philosophical principles that it's going to butt heads with. But when you look at the foundation of Stoicism, it really allows other philosophies to to kind of thrive as well. And so, I don't know what the hang up is, uh, but I'm glad that there are people like uh, you out there fighting a good fight, trying to get it a little bit more widespread. So, so thank you for that, and, and keep up at it. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so before uh, before we do close out completely, um, what are some ways folks can uh, familiarize themselves with your work a little bit more? Uh, so probably the easiest way to find me, if you have a Twitter account, um, I'm at Evolving War. Um, you find me there and I'm active on that account. Uh, I do have a YouTube channel as well. And uh, on that YouTube channel, I think I have about 50-some videos that cover military education theories. And I think I have uh, almost 20 interviews with various scholars on a wide range of topics as well that people can go over there and check out. And uh, from either my Twitter account or my YouTube account, I do have uh, an ORCID account, which is an actual account that lists my full scholarly writing that you can find over the I have over 100 papers and videos floating around out there, and you can uh, kind of just Google my name and you'll find me come up on uh, the various military journals out there around the globe um, with various thoughts about military education theory. Okay, outstanding. And as, as always, for the listeners, I'll, I'll have those uh, linked in the show notes so you can go and, and follow the uh, the YouTube channel. I like that because uh, you, you were talking about uh, – uh, Captain uh, Partridge and the impact he's had on, on your life. And it shows because you got a lot of videos where you're just out taking a walk, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so good. So and, uh, training. Yeah, definitely. I love it. So yeah, I'll have all those links out there for everybody. I highly recommend go check uh, out the YouTube channel, get with him on, on social media, uh, check out the book and check out those writings. Um, I want to say to everyone, uh, thank you for sticking with us. This has been a fantastic conversation. If you have never considered Stoic philosophy before, I highly recommend it. Uh, one of my favorite books, and it's just kind of more of a collection of, of uh, quotes, really, but it gets it, it does get kind of deep into it, is The, the Anchoridian. Um, check that out. And uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, Reach out to me at burden.command at gmail.com, burden.command at gmail.com. Make sure you're liking, rating, reviewing, subscribing, doing all those great things on the platforms uh, to, to get the show more visibility. Uh, so great guests like Dr. Annis can have their platforms uh, spread uh, across the globe. With that, thank you again for your time. Appreciate you sticking with us, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business, spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. 
Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for The The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. 